Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, Let's begin. It is my pleasure to welcome Jason De Leon, Professor of Anthropology and Chicano Chicana Studies at UCLA. Jason's research focuses on the experiences of clandestine migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexican border. He's the director of the Undocumented Migration Project, a long-term study of border crossing that uses a combination of ethnographic, archaeological, visual, and forensic approaches to understand this phenomenon in a variety of geographical contexts. He has written about these subjects in the wonderful book, The Land of Open Graves, as well as a number of journal articles, and is now working on a book called Soldiers and Kings that uses photoethnography to examine the daily lives of Honduran smugglers moving migrants across Mexico. Jason, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so we often begin the podcast uh, asking our guests how they became an ethnographer. Um, 
But in your case, it's it's kind of a particularly interesting question because uh, you're actually a trained archaeologist, and I think your dissertation was on ancient stone tools. Um, so how did you go from studying ancient cultures to focusing on uh, what is a very modern phenomenon of migration? Well, you know, I I would say it's probably there's two things that that happened, maybe three. Um, one was as I began doing fieldwork, archaeological fieldwork in Mexico as an undergraduate student, and then as a graduate student, I just became increasingly close to many of the women and men that I worked with on archaeological excavations. And these are working class folks who are getting paid to dig ditches with archaeologists who are getting, you know, paid not, not super great, you know, folks who are, who come from oftentimes rural communities. Uh, And many of those individuals that I met during the course of field work had either already migrated to the United States and failed or had returned for, for various reasons, or they themselves were getting ready to migrate um, to the U S and, you know, I just really became increasingly interested in the stories that people were telling me about their experiences crossing the U.S.-Mexico border or or why they were getting ready to do, do those sorts of things. And, and I think I also became increasingly less interested in archaeology in general, at least the, the, the kind of archaeology that I was doing. And, you know, I'd always, as a graduate student, kind of had a, one foot in ethnography, you know, the first the first article I published as a graduate student was actually um, in the Journal of Field Methods on um, ethnographic interviewing um, methods. So I was always sort of interested in that. And um, and even as, a, as an undergraduate student as well, you know, I really kind of bought the whole line of about anthropology being, you know, four fields and us being able to move back and forth across subdisciplines. Um, so those things were always, you know, it was a, those kind of combination of things. And then, you know, I went to Penn State for graduate school, which, you know, at the time and really now um, is very much the same, you know, doesn't have a lot of sociocultural folks either at the faculty level or with graduate student level. And so, you know, I didn't interact with a lot of sociocultural folks as a, as a graduate student, but I happened to share an office with one of, with one of the few who was in our department at the time. And I remember she put a book on my desk one day and said, you know, she said something like, you know, you're into real fucked up shit and, this book might just be really right up, right up your alley. Um, and the book that she gave me was, was um, Philippe Bourgeois in search of respect. And, um, you know, I took that book on vacation. I read it in a couple of days and, you know, I just really got excited about um, the, the way that he was writing about this difficult subject of, you know, of drug dealing and violence, but really trying to do it in this, in this very sort of self-aware um, and, and what I would consider to be a very sensitive way. Um, and, you know, so that was something I really, I felt like I had always kind of gravitated towards that subject matter in general, you know, difficult subject matter um, for a variety of reasons. And I just, this was the first time I'd really seen someone do it in a domestic context and really write about it in a way that I thought um was both insightful as well as sort of true to the what I would imagine the experience of doing that type of ethnography would be. Yeah, it's a great book and and really notable for its engagement with the the research subjects' lives in a really deep way. Yes, you know, you know, and I read that book and um and I was already kind of thinking about shifting gears to something else. And um, by the time I got to writing my dissertation, I knew that I didn't want to do any more archaeology after that. And so I wrote the dissertation knowing full well that I was going to go on the job market and try to get a position as a sociocultural anthropologist. And I really spent the first kind of three years after my dissertation 
reinventing myself as an ethnographer and and shifting gears from from uh, archaeology of Mesoamerica to thinking about the relationship between ethnography and an archaeology of the contemporary in um, along the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, I think I read that you're from McAllen, Texas. Is is that right? Partly, yeah. I grew up. Um, I was an army brat, so we, we moved around quite a bit. But I went to elementary school in, in McAllen, uh, but then I moved to to Long Beach, California, when I was around ten. But I, but you know, but as a kid, I remember, you know, we moved back and forth across that border quite a bit as a, when I was a kid. So I, I would assume that that also informs the the very fact that you wanted to study um, borders and people moving across them, right? It did. I didn't really think about it in those terms at the time that I was sort of shifting gears. Um, you know, it wasn't until I started taking stock of what I was doing and why I was doing it that I started to think about the fact that as a kid, I had moved back and forth across that border many, many times. I'd spent a lot of time in Mexico with family. I'd spent a lot of time in the U.S. with undocumented family uh, members. And, you know, and I vividly remember seeing people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in broad daylight and, in, in, you know, in um, in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so I think those things were always kind of in the back of my head. Like, you know, migration was something that was very familiar to me, but I never really thought about it as something that could be the subject of like, of, of work or a study that I would do. And and later on, it, you know, when the pieces kind of fell together, it, it started to make a lot of sense as, as to why I gravitated towards something like migration. So how, so how does the land of open graves happen? I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable book in terms of, uh, the, and I, I mean, your background is probably the only thing that allows this, but in terms of the, the multi-method approach where there's, you know, you're doing archaeology of, of things that uh, migrants leave behind in the desert, there's forensic science, um, we, you're even uh, killing pigs and, and seeing what happens to them uh, as, as a way to sort of see what would happen to the bodies of, of human migrants who tragically die. Um, you're hanging out in migrant shelters, you're doing interviews in a whole bunch of different uh, settings. How, how does all of that come together? You know, I wish I could say that it was all well planned out and strategic, but, you know, it really just unfolded in this kind of natural progression. I, I had, you know, I got interested in Arizona. So I went down there to think about ethnography. Um, I was exposed early on to, uh, you know, these objects that migrants were leaving out in the in the desert, thousands of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of things that suddenly I began to think about, okay, well, I have this background in archaeology. And so I think about these materials perhaps in a different kind of way than maybe an ethnographer would have. So what happens if I start to study this phenomenon using archaeological methods that I've been trained to do previously, and then coupling that with, with this growing interest in ethnography? And I really, you know, wanted I didn't want. I don't believe that objects can speak for themselves, and so I really wanted to 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 couple the archaeological work with the voices of migrants, which just required me, you know, spending lots of time in in migrant shelters and you know hanging out in migrant shelters with working class, mostly at the time Latino, mostly Mexican working class men. You know, those were things that felt really familiar because of my own background and you know my family members and and the folks I had grown up with. So those two things were kind of you know sort of natural outgrowths of one of an academic. Um, training and one out of a sort of personal background, the forensic science stuff just sort of happened because nobody could give me good information about what happens to the bodies of migrants in the Arizona desert. Um, you know, we, during the course of the work, we, we would encounter human remains and I was becoming more and more 
frustrated by the lack of research on that topic. And so I just started taking a deep dive into, into seeing, you know, what would, what would forensic work look like in that context? And so as, as new questions or new moments arose, I just started kind of looking for, for different methods that I could um, latch onto that could help me understand this phenomenon. And, you know, the, the book ends up being kind of a, a three field or maybe in, in some parts a four field, you know, analysis of border crossings. But I didn't set out for it to do that. I really set out um, with some pr- pretty basic questions and those things just kind of started to evolve. And And I think part of my uh, my interest in moving across those, you know, sub-disciplines was also the fact that when I was an undergraduate student at UCLA, um, the the training that we were required, it's, and this has changed in recent years, but, you know, I was forced to take two or three courses in every single subdiscipline, including advanced seminars as an undergraduate in all four subfields. And so I was getting exposed to stuff that maybe, you know, some undergraduates wouldn't. And and I was just getting really excited about the fact that for someone who, you know, is as scatterbrained as I am, or who has, as, you know, so many diverse a diverse set of interests, I could move across different spaces and still be able to call all of it anthropology at the end of the day. Yeah, the book reflects that in a way that um, I don't know if I've actually read any other books that that do, whether it's scatterbrained or diverse or um, it's it's really interesting. So does it does it start as an archaeological project? Or does it start as like archaeology plus ethnography or what's what's the genesis yeah, I think it um, it started as archaeology plus ethnography because it really I, in the beginning I wanted to just do an ethnography of border crossings. I had no interest in returning to archaeology, and um, you know it wasn't it really wasn't until I started to understand that that migrants were leaving behind this huge archaeological footprint that I realized that I could go back to this thing that I thought I had run away from. Um, but you know when I when I went and gave my job talk at the University of Washington, which was my first position after graduate school. I was pitching them a project that was 100% sociocultural anthropology with zero archaeological component to it. Um, and it was sort of during that first year as I started to dive deeper into the topic of border crossing that I realized that I could bring all this stuff back into the into the conversation and I could potentially put, you know, put archaeology into, into conversation with ethnography in an interesting way. But even at the time, you know, I, I was very ignorant of the pre-existing, you know, other than the, the the Tucson Garbage Project, which was the one kind of contemporary archaeological project that I was familiar with, and I think a lot of students in, of the '90s, um, you know, were exposed to that very famous book by by Bill Rathje. Um, but other than that, I didn't realize that there were a bunch of people in you know places like England um, who were doing interesting work, uh, you know, contemporary archaeological work um, to understand you know contemporary social issues. And so I really sort of walked away from archaeology and then came back to discover that there were a lot of things there that um, that I was really missing out on. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I I come from a sociological background actually, and and I feel like I know nothing about archaeology. You know, sharing a lot with anthropology in terms of, of ethnography, obviously, but sort of that that idea of uh, of of what you did in, in terms of it's it's a book that's very humanizing um, and very focused on human experience, but then using objects to do that as well as obviously a lot of um, a lot of stories and people's experiences. Well, you know, I think that's one of the problems with archaeology is that we're not very good at speaking beyond our, you know, our kind of limited audience. And I do think that there is so much that archaeology can offer to folks studying contemporary social issues. Um, You know, I mean, archaeologists think about 
things like landscape and time and materiality in really interesting um, and often and often radically different ways than like a sociocultural anthropologist or a sociologist would. But yet, I you know I'll, I'll meet sociologists or or ethno or or sociocultural folks who say, oh, I'm interested in landscape or I'm interested in memory or materiality. And I'll say, well, you should check out, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, um, th- you know, it's a, a oftentimes literature, I think, that is so foreign to them just because of, um, you know, we're not often trained to, to go out looking for that kind of stuff. And I do think that, um, you know, this movement to, to think about this contemporary world from an archaeological perspective is so fascinating and really opens up a lot of new possibilities for people studying contemporary social issues. Well, given that this is a podcast for, for ethnographers or people interested in ethnography, what do you have specific recommendations you would make other than your own book? You know, people can, I mean, people can look at the work of like, um, you know, there's, there's people like John Schofield. There, you know, there's a whole bunch of folks in England who are doing interesting contemporary archaeological work. Um, and then there's a bunch of new, like the, the, the kind of American, those folks were oftentimes looking at, you know, landscape and, and space and, and contemporary you know, like contemporary consumption, those sorts of things. But there's also a kind of a, a new radical wing in archaeology that's like, I think, rethinking what historical archaeology means. So all of the work being done um, on on things like, uh, like uh, you know, Japanese concentration camps, the work being done on, on, um, on homeless encampments. Um, there's people like Larry Zimmerman, who, who I think is doing interesting work. Um, you know, so anytime someone comes to me and says, you know, these these buzzwords like landscape, memory, time, um, you know, objects, materiality. I think there's so much out there. And, and also some of it too can just really be, um, um, oh, I should also say Shannon Dottie's work at Chicago is also, I think, just real phenomenal. Um, I think she's been thinking about these issues for a long time. Um, but there's also some real classic texts that people can, you know, can kind of dive into. I mean, Rathji's book, Rubbish, I think is a classic example. Um uh, what else is out there? Um, a lot of the work by by Michael Schiffer on on the way in which archaeological sites are formed, I think, is super fascinating and very relevant. Um, but you know, folks just have to kind of go out there and dig in the library, and, and and some of that stuff is you know from the '70s and '80s. But I find it to be really um, useful for thinking about you know contemporary issues today. No, great. That that all sounds very interesting, and actually, some of the themes that you mentioned are, are of interest to me. So I'll I'll look forward to checking it out. Um, to questions of writing, um, sticking with the land of open graves, uh, there's an entire chapter in the book, um, where you write, and I I thought it was fantastic and, and has even been inspiring to me in, in an article that I've, that I've written, um, where you, you write a composite narrative, you write the account of a, of a border crossing. I think it's semi-fictionalized. Obviously, based on lots of uh, lots of interviews with people, um, and that's not something that's that's done often, possibly more in anthropology than sociology. Uh, but I wanted to ask you why why you chose to write in this way, and and sort of what response have you had from people? Yeah, you know that really that chapter evolved out of the fact that I needed to write like a, a history and background section for the Sonora desert. I needed a chapter that could explain to people in, in real simple ways, what the desert looked like, um, you know, environmentally, you know, what the desert, how it was sort of experienced. And as I started writing it out, 
it was like in the Sonoran Desert, you know, the average temperature in the summer ranges from 95 degrees to 110. You know, I, I, I was making this kind of laundry list of stuff. You know, there are this many rattlesnakes, et cetera, et cetera. And I just realized that, that nobody, like that information has to be there, but nobody wants to read it in that format. And so I got really frustrated. It's like, well, maybe instead of just giving this laundry list kind of background historical section, what if I just tell a story based on all these interviews that I've done that were not going to get included in the book anyway, because they were kind of one-offs. You know, I'd, inter- I'd interviewed a lot of folks that I wasn't able to follow up with. And so I had a lot of interesting stories that were, you know, 45 minutes long. And I was, I didn't want to get rid of those either. And so I was like, well, what if I just try to tell a story about the desert that hits all of these kind of marks, but then doesn't, but, but also kind of keeps the narrative sort of rolling. Um, and so I just started really experimenting with that. And that was the first time that I, I felt like I was really um, emboldened to write like I wanted to write. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, before that I was really nervous about how I was going to put, put words to paper. Was I saying the right things? Was I writing in the, in a particular, in the right kind of style to be taken seriously? Um, and by the time I got to working on the book, which was the last thing I did really before going out for tenure, I could have cared less anymore about, about writing for other audiences. I really just wanted to write for myself and for people, people that I was working with who I thought the stories needed to be, you know, I didn't want to suck them of, uh, suck them dry of life. Um, so that was just a lot of experimenting. And then also just me leaning on my other kind of art- artistic interests, whether that's about music or creative writing, things that I had always compartmentalized away from, from my anthropological work. And I ended up just bringing that all back in. And, and part of it also too grew out of the fact that maybe 15, 16 years ago, um, Michael Wells, who, who has, who does a lot of the photos in the book, he wanted to do a photo essay for this art magazine. And so he had gone down to Tijuana and he had taken a whole bunch of pictures of the border. And he says like, will you write some text for this? And at the time I wasn't even doing any border research, but I had spent enough time with migrants and I was spent enough time crossing the U S Mexico border, uh, to have a sense of what, you know, what a, a story could be. So I ended up kind of writing this short story about, um, you know, these indigenous Guatemalan migrants who, who get smuggled across the border, get arrested and, um, and then get deported. Um, but it was just me kind of having, you know, artistic license to say what, what, you know, what's the story I would want to tell, what would dialogue kind of look like? Um, and that was really liberating. And so when with Land of Open Graves, I kind of went back to that. Um, and then it really fundamentally changed the way that I, I, I began to think about, you know, what anthropological writing could look like. Uh, and, and I really haven't looked look back since. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully written and emotionally jarring in, in places. I mean, there's, there's places where you really feel sort of fear um, and sort of the, the real, yeah, the, the danger of the experience, uh, which is actually central to, to the book's argument. So maybe you, could you summarize for us the uh, quickly so, so that people who haven't read the book understand why the heat is relevant why the rattlesnakes are relevant. Um, this this book takes on the policy prevention through deterrence, right? Which is, uh, you know, U.S. border control policy. Um, yeah, what's what's the central argument of the book so we can understand that? You know, I, the, the, the basic argument is that the U.S. government, the Border Patrol, has funneled through, through various mechanisms and infrastructure, they have funneled migrants away from trying to cross in urban zones, urban ports of near urban ports of entry, and push them out into um, 
the most remote parts of the desert, the most remote remote parts of the border where security is relatively lax, but you have to now walk 50 or 60 miles to make it into the United States. And so the, you know, the idea is that the, the border patrol has weaponized the desert as a way to slow down migrants. And so rather than shooting people at the border, um, you know, we use infrastructure to force them over this landscape where they die from from dehydration, hyperthermia, rattlesnake bites, um, from the exacerbation of pre-existing medical conditions. And so it really is a, an attempt to to take nature and turn it into a weapon against against migrants. And so all of these things that people are experiencing, which aren't, you know, you know, guns or bullets, um, you know, they're they're part of the system where where the government is using is using nature as, as essentially an agent of the state. And, and I think that chapter is, is probably the part of the book that most compellingly, or at least in, in emotional terms, you know, I, I read the book uh, a few years ago, in fact, but that, that's what really sticks with me is, is sort of that feeling and that experience and the, the danger, the fear, um, the dehydration uh, that, um, that come out of that, that policy. Um, which highlights that it's it's a political project, right? It's not just theoretical, um, where you're you're really criticizing this this inhumane policy that uh, that ends up killing a lot of people. Um, so, kind of a, a first question about that: um, What is the undocumented migration project? Well, you know, when I began this work, I needed to put a name to all of the various things that, that we had been doing, um, you know, and so the undocumented migration project really just began as me with a few undergraduate students collecting the things that migrants leave behind in the desert. And then me doing interviews with migrants that grew into, um, you know, ex- uh, extensive forensic work. Um, it grew into um, a lot of summer ethnographic field schools, um, a lot of exhibition work. Uh, we became a nonprofit maybe two or three years ago. Um, so now, and then we've just, we're in the process of, of legally absorbing the Colibri Center for Human Rights, which is a nonprofit based in Tucson that does, um, that works with families of the missing. And so we collect DNA from family members who are looking for their loved ones and try to, to make matches with with recovered remains from, from Arizona. Um, so the undocumented migration project really does all those things. Now it's, you know, it's research, it's arts, it's education, and it's also direct service with, um, with, with migrants and their, and their families. Um, but it's this kind of evolving thing that, um, you know, there's a lot of collaborators who work on it. We do a lot of different things kind of simultaneously. And, um, you know, so it, it was just a way to, to have a, um, an overarching umbrella that could include all the various projects that we, that we kind of have, you know, happening at any given time. So how do you how do you juggle these, you know, very important political contributions and not not just politics in terms of like influencing the dialogue, but actually, you know, what you said, concrete um, interventions to, to help people who need help. Uh, how do you juggle that with like the theoretical contributions, the, the pressures of being a, a professor of, of anthropology? You know, I just, it's all connected. Um, and rather than trying to wear three different hats and say, okay, sometimes I'm doing my public facing work. Sometimes I'm doing my more scholarly work. It's all the same work to me now. Um, you know, and, uh, so like if I, you know, I just, I've just finished a book that is, 
you know, fairly light on the theory. It's really more heavy on just like ethnographic detail and, and storytelling. Um, but it's also a book that's aimed at a, at a wider public audience. And, um, you know, that was a decision that I made. Like, like I could have written a, a, a more theoretical book that would have a, a smaller audience and potentially also, um, shift the story away from the one that I wanted to tell, or I could, or I could make some, make some, um, some decisions up front about, you know, who I wanted to write to. And, and, and that varies with, with projects. I mean, soldiers and Kings is very much, you know, it's a trade book. It's for a public audience. And then the follow-up book that I'm working on right now is, is related to it. It's, it's on the photography that we did with that project, but that one is, is perhaps more theoretical in that it's, it's a, it's a deeper dive into thinking about what it means to make images. Um, what, what, how we can think about photoethnography as a physical interaction with others, as well as a, you know, a, a complicated way of representing other people's experiences that's mediated through technology, as well as through, you know, aesthetic and technical decisions. Um, and so that's kind of two different projects. They're part of the same, two different books, part of the same project, but it's just me thinking about them in, in different kinds of ways. And, and they, and they kind of serve different, different purposes. Uh, but I'm also, you know, I have the benefit of like, you know, being post tenure that I, I could stop writing tomorrow and, and, you know, my life wouldn't, wouldn't dramatically change because of, you know, because of things. So, you know, there, there has been some flexibility in terms of the different kind of projects that I want to take on. Um, but it's kind of a, a case by case basis. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's a great transition, actually, because I wanted to ask you about soldiers and kings um, and also photography uh, or photoethnography. Um, so this, this new book, uh, focuses less on border crossers and more on human smugglers who, who help them cross and particularly, uh, across Mexico, if I'm right, that, that it's focused more on, um, in fact, uh, smugglers from, from Honduras. Is that right? Correct. So why, yeah, well, since, why, since, why and how since, did, did you end up focusing on that? I mean, obviously similar themes, right? But how did you end up sort of switching your focus in that way? Well, you know, I'd, I went down to do, to do, I ran a field school in 2015 in Southern Mexico in Chiapas. Um, and my wife wanted to go down cause she was running a bioanthro um, project down there. And so I said, I'll, I'll go down and take some students uh, but I had just finished Land of Open Graves, was getting ready to come out, and I really wanted to shift gears and do something totally different. I didn't want to do any more migration stuff. Um, but I went down there, and um, you know, through a random series of events, you know, I had students who were working in migrant shelters with migrants, and I, I really had no interest in doing that anymore. So I ended up spending all this time on the train tracks outside of these migrant shelters, where I began to just meet smugglers and just ended up spending all my days with them. And realizing that, you know, it was a, a it was a, a group of people that I could easily access, and I had really good um, rapport with. Um, but also, it just felt like a really um, uh, an ignored uh, story. And you know, after Land of Open Graves, people were saying things like, "Oh, so I guess now maybe you'll go to you'll go to Texas and start looking at migrant stuff, or maybe you go to the Mediterranean." And I just I did not want to be the guy who who did the archaeology of migrants. Um, I, and, and I'm always worried about getting stale with a project. Like, you know, there are some people who, who are totally content to ride the same idea for, for 30 years. And for me, I just get, I, I'm not really wedded to, to theoretical concepts or methods or, or any of those things. I'm just sort of chasing my own curiosity. 
And so after Land of Open Graves, I thought to myself, well, I don't want to do any more archaeology, at least not for a while. Um, the first book really didn't talk much about law enforcement. It didn't talk about smugglers and and women were sort of on the periphery for, for various reasons. So I, so I said, if I'm going to do a new project, then maybe it's got to be on, on, on one of those three subjects or some combination of them. And so I just ended up getting kind of knee deep in with smugglers um, and with a little bit with the border patrol um, and and women migrants and women smugglers and, and just started kind of crafting a, a project out of that. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to do something that was going to be really challenging so it was a full-on ethnographic project, no archaeology to kind of lean on, no forensic science. It was also on a topic that's, you know, that's really difficult to, you know, to engage with. I mean, I think people are not that excited about me doing an ethnography of smugglers because, you know, smugglers are supposed to be the bad guys. People get, you know, we get worried about, uh, are we going to be humanizing, you know, people who are doing, you know, bad things. And my response to those things is, is I'm not, is I, I begin a book on smugglers from the radical proposition that they are in fact humans and do not need to be humanized in any way, shape or form. They, they, they are, we don't need to justify their human existence. They just are. And so what happens if we just try to understand that perspective? I mean, we may not like it. And of course there were many things I didn't like. And in the book, I write about these very difficult and brutal moments that I have to witness or experience. Um, but for me, it was just an important shift away from, you know, cause I could have written another book about migrants that I think it's relatively easy to write a, a, a sympathetic story about migrants. Um, it's a lot harder to write a nuanced story about folks who are caught up in a, in a thing that most people hate and that has, you know, these very, very brutal elements to it. Um, so I really wanted to challenge myself and to make matters worse. And I said, okay, if I'm not going to do archaeology or forensic science, why don't we add photography to the mix and see what happens if I throw in a whole new method um, just to see, just to see what, what, what comes out the other end. Well, I want to ask about photography, but but just quickly, something you said that that these smugglers were an easy group to access. That strikes me as a little counterintuitive. Why, or or how so? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were easy to access for me, I guess. Um, and part of it is I just kind of just fell in with these guys, and you know, I'm always I'm always super op- open about my motivations and about um, you know what it is I'm doing. And, um, you know, very quickly, I mean, I would say within a matter of hours, I was, I, I was working closely with folks and, and that only grew over, you know, over the many, the many years. And I think with smugglers, the, um, you know, the, the thing for them was that nobody had ever come to them and said, Hey, your stories are important. I want to understand them. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to try to understand what, what is happening. And I want to, you know, I want to listen these are folks who have themselves been marginalized, demonized, who are caught between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, for someone to come in and say those things to them, I think was a important moment. And it only became more important as I repeatedly returned and tried to understand, you know, what their lives were like. Um, But, you know, but these are folks and and in in the stories that, that I write about in the book, I mean, these are folks who come from very difficult circumstances. I mean, um, you know, they come from very violent backgrounds. They've been surrounded by violence their entire lives. Um, they've been abused themselves. And so, you know, this project really um, was an attempt for them, was an attempt for me to try to understand their perspective, but also was trying to provide them with an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to tell their story. Well, I look forward to reading the book. Um, when is it, when is it coming out? Oh, that's an excellent question. I've I've just finished the draft. It's gone. It's flown away, and 
and people are looking at it now, um, you know, I would imagine probably in the um, the spring of next year. Great. Well, I look forward. So probably this, this time next year. I look forward to it. And, and congratulations on finishing a draft. Um, no, thanks. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that's, that's been a big, a big project. Um, but I want to switch. Well, especially pan, like pan, pandemic writing is not, uh, it's not, not pleasant. I can imagine. I can imagine. And anyone that's, anyone that's been productive during the pandemic, it's like more, more power to you because I just felt like for most of it, I've, I've just been trying to keep my head above water. Um, but, um. Yeah, so the fact that I was able to finish a book during all of this, I feel really, really lucky. Yeah, yeah, no, congratulations. Um, but I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to to ask you about photography, and even going back to uh, a few months before the pandemic was going to start. Uh, I think an October night in two thousand nineteen, uh, you gave a talk at UT Austin um, on soldiers and kings. Um, and I was there. I'm a graduate student still at UT Austin, even though I'm now in, in Colombia doing field work. Um, and at that point, uh, I'm going to try to say this without, without kissing your ass, but um, at that point, I was sort of at a, at a moment where I was trying to decide whether to buy a camera or not for my field work. Um, I'd taken a bunch of photos on my cell phone. I sort of was realizing that because I didn't have a great cell phone, they, they didn't live up to the, uh, you know, 300 DPI that, that you need to publish them in, in journals. So I was sort of feeling like I was enjoying the photography. I do research in this really beautiful area of rural Columbia. Um, but I hadn't completely decided to, to buy a camera yet. And I was about to go into the field for an extended amount of time. Um, and you gave this presentation, which was wonderful, and everything you said was rooted in these striking photos that you had of migrants, of the human smugglers. You're telling these stories. You're mixing stories of their lives with your own experiences, photographing them um, with some like sort of broader, you know, this what, what this phenomenon is, explanations, and then all this stuff that went over my head, which was like technical information about photography, like what film you were using, for example. Um, which I think I still don't really understand. Um, but yeah, that uh, really inspired me and I, and I thought it was really cool. And I, and I thought, well, this is, you know, this, I would like to be able to present my work in that way as well, you know, with photos that are, um, that match the stories that I'm telling. Um, so how, how did you get into, you know, you said this was sort of a new thing for you. Um, I know you had a partnership with, uh, you mentioned Michael Wells earlier, where it seemed from, from what I've read that he was sort of the photographer and you were the archaeologist or ethnographer. Um, how did you start? Maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, how did you start taking photos and, and really seeing a, a photography as a, an integral part of your, of your ethnographic research? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off well thanks for coming to the talk and um you know i'm glad uh i mean i'm I'm glad you got a camera because i think everybody should get a camera and and and, and get more excited and, and interested in it i think it's such a it's such an under appreciated for various reasons i think we you know we, we've moved away from it in in you know in terms of ethnography because of i think it, our troubled history with uh with still images, but, um, you know, I find it to be so fascinating and, um, you know, what, but what ended up happening with, with me, you know, with Land of Open Graves, I took some photos in that book and they were, they were, they were only taken when the times when Mike was not around to take the pictures himself. Um, you know, cause there was big chunks of that project where we're walking around and I'm like, Hey Mike, take a picture of this, take a picture of that kind of thing. Um, when I began the second, the second project, I went to, you know, I'd gone to Chiapas for this after, right after the book had, was done. And, you know, I was hoping Mike was going to come with me. And he says, you know, his, his wife was getting ready to have to give birth to a child. And he said, I can't go. You should just buy a, buy a new camera and just take, pick, take your own pictures. And, you know, I'll tell you what to get, you know, anybody could, even you can, I'll get a camera, even you can operate kind of thing. Um, so, you know, so I went, I got a camera, I came, I went to Mexico and I started taking pictures and and I just realized that that I really wanted like I wanted to take interesting photos, and it's really hard to take interesting photos. And I, and part of the reason was because I just had no experience with it. I had I you know I'd been taking pictures my entire life, like, you know snapshots, but I had never taken it seriously. But I came back from that first summer in Mexico, totally in love with photography. Um, I had been I, I got a grant from the Mellon Foundation to do a. Um, what's called a new directions grant. And so they, they give you funding for a year to take on some new idea or some new method. And so I, I, initially I was going to do a whole bunch of forensic chemistry stuff until I realized or remembered that, you know, I actually failed high school chemistry. And so I probably shouldn't be trying to take on some, some crazy forensic, I should just outsource that to someone else who's much, who's much smarter and more inclined to those kinds of questions. So I shifted gears towards photography. I started taking um, photography classes at my community college, started taking workshops. Um, you know, my buddy Mike has a, a giant library of, of photo books and I would always give him shit about, I would say, you know, how much you pay for this book? And he'd say, oh, I paid 60 bucks for this book. And like, you paid $60 for a photo book. Um, that seemed a little excessive. And also like, how many times can you possibly look at one photo, you know, one photography book? And after I kind of got the bug, I just realized that like, I can sit with some of these books forever. I can constantly pick them up and and learn new things and see new things. And so I just started doing that. And, um, I, you know, and I got real deep into analog photography and I, and I just wanted to understand how images were made, but then also what happens if I take all the technical things about camera, about camera usage and image making and put that into conversation with all the things that I already know about the world via, because of anthropology, um, and, you know, it ended up Mike and I then began this project in 2016 shooting smugglers. 
which has com been completely analog. And it's been really great. I mean, we're working, I'm working on this book right now that's half my images and half of his. And it's just been really a really great new kind of collaboration for the two of us. Um, it's great to, to be able to put these images next to each other, um, to have these detailed conversations about, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and, and, you know, I'm teaching photography classes now, which I never thought that I would, I would ever be doing. But I just, you know, I just got this kind of bug. And I think um, if you look at images in the right way and and you get exposed to like particular ways of thinking about images, it really does open up all new kinds of worlds in terms of research and in terms of just even trying to visualize, um, you know, your experience and, and, and other people's experiences. And so it's, for me, it's been really wonderful to, to go in this new direction and um, incredibly fulfilling. So you did this first research project which included, as, as we talked about, a lot of different methods, but you're doing ethnography without a camera, um, but often with a photographer. The second research project, working with smugglers, it, it sounds like a lot of the time you have a camera in your hand and, and you're taking photos of them, right? Um, how, how does having and using a camera uh, change the way you do ethnography? Um, and does it change even your relationship with, with participants? Well, it definitely changes the way you look at what's going on around you. You know, before I was so concerned about just running around and recording everything I possibly could, you know, and, and with adding a camera to the mix now, you know, I'm suddenly much more attuned to things that are happening around me that I perhaps would not have been. Um, and for me, like photography is, is a form of note taking. So I can go back to these images later on and I can, and I can remember things, um, you know, it's a way of just straight documenting something, uh, but it's also a way of of trying to to put together things out into the world that I think are really interesting and that and that I wouldn't necessarily have combined you know combined or connected the dots without a camera. Um, so so it does it really does change. It, it actually makes ethnography too a lot more active. I feel like I'm a really um, I'm constantly like, I need to be moving around and doing stuff. And so having a camera really, instead of like smoking cigarettes, having a camera just allows me to, to be, to, to be really active and, um, and, and constantly thinking about, you know, you know, can I make images of this but at the same time, you know, the ethnography I do sometimes, you know, I'll shoot seven, eight, 10 rolls of film in a day. And then other days I won't take a single picture. And so it just depends on the kind of mood and, and, you know, what's happening. I mean, there are a lot of moments where, where the camera just doesn't, doesn't come out, uh, which I think is also interesting for me to think about, um, you know, why that is. And, you know, in my relationship with, with, with the people I work with, um, it's, it makes them kind of more attuned to like the visual. So they're constantly sending me photos of things that they're, that they're, that they're seeing. Um, they're constantly telling me what I should be taking pictures of, or, you know, when I'm not using the camera, it's like, why, you know, why are you not? photographing this kind of stuff. Um, but also I think people get really accustomed to me taking lots of pictures because, you know, from the get go, that's kind of my MO is like, this is what I do. And if, if you're uncomfortable with, with the audio recording or with the photography, you know, then this probably is not going to work out our, our relation, our research relationship. So are you audio recording a lot of your, your conversations or is that just like specific interviews or? Yeah. No, I mean, I try to, if I, I like to have the thing running as much as I possibly can. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ambient noise and just garbage, you know? Um, but, um, you know, it's, I find it to be a much more looser structure where if I sit down with someone to do an interview, um, 
you know, it's kind of one of these things like as soon as you turn off the, the voice recorder, that's when they really start to say interesting stuff or they remember something right after you've turned it off. Um, and, and, and I don't really like cornering people just like, okay, this is like our hour to get, you know, to get something done. But, you know, if we're sitting around drinking beer for six hours, that voice recorder is just on and, you know, they're walking around with it. They're giving it to people. They're talking into it. You know, they're, they're ignoring it or they're coming back to it. Um, and, and I just find that to be a, a much kind of looser way. And cause I don't also, I don't take a lot of notes in the field. Um, and so the voice recording really helped. So what I'm going to ask two questions as a, as a lazy ethnographer, uh, the basic question is, like, do, doesn't that generate a lot of work for you afterwards? But uh, what I what I'm really interested in knowing is, like, what do you do with that recording? So you have your six hour conversation where people are drinking beer, talking about whatever. You don't take many notes. What do you do with that six hour recording afterwards? Well, it is a lot of work to go back mm-hmm. through it. You know, when I I started writing Soldiers and Kings really in earnest in the the late summer of 2020 and i would say that probably from august until almost november all i was doing was listening to audio coding it and translating it It there's a lot of i mean you know so three or four months of just that which is really frustrating i mean because you just feel like you're just you're just kind of spinning your wheels um, I think it, for me, it's good though, to be able to go back and to, and to revisit every single thing to code it, um, to kind of get really familiar and to put myself into a mode of like, okay, I've just listened to all this stuff for months. Now I think I'm finally prepared to go in and, and, and be able to write it. Um, the, the writing tends to come pretty fast after that. Um, but yeah, I go through and, and code all that stuff. So, you know, garbage and make notes about it. Um, you know, and, you know, I can ignore this. I have a spread, you know, I code it in, in a program and then I also have a spreadsheet that tells me, you know, things I need to go back to, but it's a lot of data management with, um, with the audio. So you're literally listening to all of it, but months or years later, this isn't like a crutch to help yeah. you do field notes in the moment or the same day or the next day. No, I mean, I, like what I'll do, like, like, I don't, you know, I'm not someone who does like the scratch notes. I, I might, I might go to the bathroom and scribble down a few things, but usually what happens is I'll record something. I'll go home. If I'm not too tired, I'll write down some notes. If not, I'll get up in the morning and then, and then write out some notes and then I'll just, and then I'll revisit that audio later on. Um, but you know, whatever I thought was most important, I, you know, I tend to, to write down the following day and then the details of it, I'll, I'll revisit when I start to, um, when I start to code, but this is also, you know, with like soldiers and Kings for two, for, for more than two years, I didn't really write anything related to it. I was doing field work and I was doing other kinds of stuff, but I, but I was not writing any journal articles about the smuggling stuff. Um, I really didn't, or I'd I'd written a few things, but I, I took huge breaks from writing and I didn't want to kind of dilute the book by pushing out a bunch of smaller things. I wanted to wait until I was really felt like I was really done. And then I would go through and try to summarize the whole thing. Um, so it was good for me to step away. And part of it too, is because, you know, people had died while I was doing the field work and there'd been a lot of like graphic violence that had happened. And I just didn't think that I was in a, I was in a good position to be writing about it kind of in real time. So I needed some, some, some breathing room to go away from it and then come back and then, and then sit with it for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. Wow. Um, so second, second lazy ethnographer question, uh, why analog rather than digital um, film? You know, a couple of reasons. I think number one, there's just no substitute for 
like, you know, the, the, the images that I gravitate towards, the photographers that I'm the most excited about are people who shoot film. And in the beginning, I found that I was spending a lot of time in, in Lightroom trying to convert a digital image into to make it look like an analog photo. Um, so I was like, why? Let's just cut the middleman out and I'm just going to start shooting film. And the things I liked about film were, were one, I always have a negative. And so I don't have to, you know, even if all of my hard drives die, I can go back and rescan everything. I've got a permanent record of those things that will outlive all of the technology. Um, also, you know, for security reasons, when I, when I travel, um, you know, no one's going through my, my, um, you know, my SIM cards on cameras because there's nothing to look at. There's just a bunch of uh, rolls of exposed film. Um, so in a lot of ways, it, it sort of protects me, protects me and the people I work with when I go through, when I travel internationally. But I would say probably the, the most important thing for me is there is no substitute, as far as I'm concerned, for like the feel of a film camera. I mean, there's just something about holding one of those cameras, about the smell of film, the, the, the tactileness of the, of the machinery. Um, you know, I just, I just, I love it. I mean, I'm in love with, with shooting film. Um, I love the fact that I have to decide way ahead of time, like, what is this project going to look like? What kind of film am I going to use? What kind of camera am I going to use? Um, you know, I don't do a lot of post-processing. I don't crop. Um, you know, I shoot a mix of black and white and color when I shoot in black and white, that's all there is. There's no turning that into something else later on. You know, I shoot with a particular you know type of film. So I have to make all these decisions up front. And I really like that because it, it helps me to think about how I want to visualize a project um, even before I've made those images. Um, and so it takes a lot of like forethought, which I, which I find um, to be really helpful for me to think about, you know, the, what the final product will look like. And then also just the speed, you know, film photography is slow. And I love, like, if I run out of film, I run out of film. If I run out of film, it's because I didn't plan well enough. Um, I love the fact that I can't check the exposure after I take a picture. So I'm not, I'm really, I'm in the moment. I'm taking pictures. I'm never looking at the back of the camera and trying to figure out if I got the shot or not. Um, yeah, I just, uh, there's like all of those things for me. But, you know, shooting film, it's, it's like a, you know, I play musical instruments. And it's like, there's some guitars that I pick up and they just feel like it's a part of your hand. And it makes you want to play that thing more. And the same, same thing with some of these cameras, it makes me, you know, I, I gravitate towards some cameras and I just want to keep shooting with those things. And um, so it's this weird, like tactile thing. Hmm. Now I want to buy a film camera, but. <laughs> well, I can make, I can give you all kinds of recommendations. I've, I spend way too much time thinking about film cameras. Yeah. It's intimidating though, because of what you said, you know, if it, if it doesn't come out right, there's, it's, it's hard to know and it's hard to, it's hard to edit afterwards. But once you once once you learn the basics, I mean, it's not it's not complicated. It's I mean, it's basically three settings. It's you know, it's shutter speed, um, you, you know, your 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 aperture, and then your the film ISO. Other than that, you know, is it in focus or out of focus? But um, you know, a lot of those film cameras they have a light meter on it, so you can you know the camera can do a lot of the work for you. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's only intimidating in the beginning. And, you know, once you shoot like five or ten terrible rolls of film, you get so much better at loading it, unloading it. You know, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy developing. I, I don't have much as much time as I used to to do it. Um, but even that aspect of it is, you know, crafting every single part of the image for me is a super cool you know, part of the process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so question question about anonymity, um, because there's. For good reasons, there's a lot of concern about anonymity 
um, when we write ethnography. Um, but if you want to really have a photo that, that conveys emotion, right? I mean, it's people's faces are, are crucial, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, there, there are photos that, that don't include faces and, and still convey emotion, but, um, but images of, of faces are, are so powerful. Um, and I've seen that you use images of people's faces. Uh, and, and from the presentation I saw and from what, you, what you've written about photography, it, it seems that um, in your work, both migrants and smugglers have been, uh, and what you said, have been willing to be photo- uh, photographed. Um, so has, has this been an issue for you? Or, or can, can you talk about that, that choice, um, sort of the, the ethics of using, uh, of using identifying photos? Yeah, I mean, I shoot, I don't shoot a lot of portraits, um, or at least I, I don't publish a lot of portraits, even though I, I take lots of pictures of people's faces. Um, I've gotten very good at shooting images without faces or from the behind, you know, finding different ways to mask people's identity. Um, if you see a photo that I've shot that's published and it's got someone's face on it, um, it's typically a, a kind of free floating image. It's never me saying, Oh, this is so-and-so and he's a smuggler or he's a migrant. Um, okay. It's just part of the larger population of people that I, that I photograph. And so like, you know, this, the, the book soldiers and Kings, like, there, there's probably 15 images in that book. Um, the only people's faces who you see are those people who are dead and everybody else is, you know, is, is shot from an anonymous perspe- perspective. Um, you know, some of those folks may show up in another book in a, in a more straight up photography book with, with portraits of them, but you know, they would never be identified as like, Oh, this is that person from this other book, or, you know, this person is a person who I described doing, doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so yeah, it's, it's trying to figure out how to, how to do that. Um, you know, and, and that's a, an ongoing um, kind of process. Um, but yeah, I shoot, I'm always, I always have that in mind. So, you know, I shoot a lot of por- portraits of folks knowing that I'm probably never going to be able to publish them or they won't be published for many years. And then there's another set of images that I'm trying to make where, and, and I like that challenge too. It's, it's really challenging to try to make powerful images without someone's face in it. And I'm not someone who, you know, I don't shoot a lot of landscapes. Uh, Mike Wells does shoot quite a few landscapes and like still lifes. I'm someone who constantly is shooting people, but not, the, but typically not their faces, which is really, um, which is a, 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 an exercise in frustration, but also, you know, when it works, it really, um, it's, um, it's a pretty good feeling to say, okay, I, I can do it without having to just rely on, you know, a, a facial expression to convey something. You must have beautiful photos that, I can imagine it being frustrating to have like beautiful photos with faces that you just know that you can't use, right? Oh yeah, I mean we, I think right now we have about thirteen thousand images from this current project. Um, I cut it down to about six hundred and fifty a few weeks ago, and then now we're we're getting down to about a hundred that that'll probably be in this book. That's the, the, uh, the second and, book. You know, I, I was. This is the second book, this photography mm-hmm. book. And it's frustrating. So I'm like, you know, because part of it too is, you know, and, and this is, I, I, I think, I, I'm also someone who, and, and I really stole this idea from Mike Wells. You know, he said to me, I'm not interested in taking one good picture, you know, like getting like, you know, the, like the, the, the shot that's going to win, win him the, uh, you know, uh, Pulitzer. He's like, I'm interested in how images can work together. And I think that, you know, once you start to think about photography as these, this kind of twofold thing, like, yes, it's, of course, great to make an image that's, that's you know, 
what John Sarkovsky would call lively. That's something that, that impacts, you know, the brain and the eyes. Um, but I find that there's something else that happens when you put those photographs into conversation with other images and also with, uh, with text. Um, and so you can, you can take an image that perhaps on its own is not that interesting or, or, or exciting and you put it next to something else and suddenly that image completely changes. Um, and so, and, and, that ends up being quite the case too with, you know, with not, for not shooting a lot of portraits. Um, what are other ways in which we can, we can kind of breathe life into these images or, or make them more exciting. And that's where it really comes down to like design sequence, um, um, you know, juxtaposition, all of those kinds of things. And thinking about the stories that you can, that you can tell alongside them. Exactly. I mean, that's why, you know, I think there, there's books like, um, like Larry Clark's Tulsa, which is about, um, amphetamine injectors in the late sixties and early seventies in, in Oklahoma. And the sequence of those, of that book is really powerful. And the little, I mean, that it's minimal text. I mean, it's probably like seven sentences across that entire book, but the text really does something to those stories. And I mean, and it really, it's a beautifully designed book. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for thinking about photography as a, as a form of ethnographic storytelling. Mm -hmm. If we can begin to, to take, take seriously things like, you know, like design itself. Yeah. And as, as a way of, um, you know, the, the ethnographies that I love and you mentioned one, which is in search of respect, uh, the ethnographies that I love the most are those that really take you inside people's worlds and are evocative and, you know, make you feel like you're there and you can understand, you know, what's, what's going on in people's lives, what's motivating them, what they're experiencing. And I, I think photography, uh, has just tremendous potential to, to help that process along. Yeah. And, you know, and I think what people, what they, what we often do in social science is that we take a picture and then that picture just becomes illustrative of an idea. Like, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a beautiful boat on the beach and then here's a photograph of a beautiful boat on the beach I don't know if we need a, we necessarily need a photograph of that boat. You've already explained it to me, um, you know, but can you give me a photograph that does something else to that sentence or does something else to that story? Um, I think we, we tend to think about it in this, like I'm, I was in the field, I took photos, here are photos of my field work. Um, I think we can go beyond that and really push the bounds of like how we can integrate photography into our work in really interesting ways. And part of that, I think really requires taking it more seriously as a, as a form of, practice, um, but then also, you know, becoming really well-versed in how photographers and folks and other, and other genres of research use images to tell stories. Um, you know, and so like I, I teach a, a photo ethnography class, a graduate seminar, that's partly about the mechanics of making images, but also it's partly about how we, how we lay them out and, you know, do you print them in color, black and white? What, what kind of paper stock are you using? You know, what's the sequence of things? You know, is everything, you know, what's the format of the photos that you're shooting? Is it six by six? Is it four by, is it, is it a four to three aspect ratio? All of those things that I think that we take for granted or that we don't think about because most of us are not trained photographers. Those are super crucial things that once we start getting a little bit versed in those things, it opens up totally new worlds for how we can use photography in our, um, you know, in our, in our work. That class sounds really interesting. Um, are there other people teaching photoethnography like that within, within anthropology or is this sort of something that you've taken on? I, not that really that I know. I mean, I, you know, I have, conversation. I mean, there's maybe someone like Jeff Schoenberg who teaches at, um, 
at a um, up in Berkeley. I think he does some, you know, he and he and I have had long conversations about about this stuff. I mean, he might be someone who who maybe is working on some of that stuff. Um, and there's there's also Danny Hoffman at University of Washington, who I don't know if he's teaching these things, but he definitely is thinking about photography in interesting ways. Um, but there's just not, a, I mean, photo- still photography. We're kind of like the, um, you know, the forgotten child of of visual anthropology. Everybody's, you know, has been so enamored with with filmmaking and we've kind of ignored still photography for a long time, but I do think it's, it's making a comeback. And you're right that it has a bit of a, uh, an uncomfortable history in some ways, something you said a long time ago, but um, I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's a, a reason people don't do it, but there's certainly, I think there's also a need to be careful with the, the, the kind of photography that you're taking. Yeah, for sure. And, and I just think, the problem that we have is that, you know, we're, we're worried about like rightfully worried about making a wrong, a, a wrong turn, but then there's also not a people, there's not people around who are saying, well, here's how you kind of navigate those things. Here are ways to think about practice in a way that will both recognize the troubled history of, of this method, but also allow you to move forward. You know, it, it's the same thing with like, with, with ethnography, um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, and, and this whole like, argument about like within anthropology, should we let the, di- let's let the discipline burn. I mean, I could care less about that argument um, because I just feel like we've been having that conversation off and on for, for 50 years. And rather than get caught up talking about whether or not we should be doing it ethnography, I think we should be trying to do better ethnography, recognizing the pitfalls of, of, of the approach and the problematics that we have done. But at the same time, taking those lessons and then, and then trying to keep moving the work forward, which is really how I feel about photography as well is I'm happy to talk about the critiques of it. Um, but oftentimes the people who have the strongest critique about, about still photography are folks who, who know nothing about the history of, of photography and really know nothing about image making. So is, is this uh, new book that you're working on um, with Michael Wells is, is it partly sort of a methodological argument about using photography or is it, um, it will. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, you know, for, for the last several years, I've been trying to think through photography as a method um, and how, you know, it's, and, and like David McDougall has a, has a great piece um, in his book, the corporeal image where he talks about, you know, photography as this very physical interaction with, with someone else, with, a, with, a, with another subject and the camera as this mediator be, between the two. And I've really wanted to think about, you know, methodologically, what does it mean to, to try to tell a story visually? And what does it mean to be in a context where you're using a camera to, to capture people's experiences? Um, so, yeah, I think this new this this new new book is really about how I think about photography as a as a form of of, of ethnographic method, as well as trying to tell a story about, you know, about migration along the way. Well, no, that sounds really interesting. Um, I, I will very much look forward to, to reading that. Um, and, and I will say that for me, using a camera in the field has, has absolutely changed my ethnography. And I think in very, very positive ways, both in terms of what I'm doing in the field and uh, in terms of, you know, presenting my work in, in a variety of ways. Um, Last question for you, Jason, and, and this is something that we, we like to ask a lot of people um, in 
uh, I'm guessing in your case will will probably produce an interesting story. Um, is is there one thing, one story, one experience from sort of all your time in the field uh, that you've never quite found the, the the place to share, whether to write about or or to tell, um, that you'd be willing to share with us right now? Um. Yeah, I mean, well, I think one of the things that I learned working on Land of Open Graves is that I think if you want to write a book that with a driving narrative, you really, you, you can't become wedded to stories or to text. You know, you have to be able to cut stuff out. You have to be able to like jettison things that are not serving the story. And I think it'll, a lot of times with ethnography, um, we're not really thinking about storytelling and we're thinking like, I've got all the stuff that I need to, need to include in this thing and that everything is important. Um, but I don't think that's always the case. And, um, you know, I think one of the, for me, one of the things I got really frustrated about land of open graves was there was a, a, a story where, um, this young woman who I met in a migrant shelter in, in Nogales, Mexico, she was a member, um, this woman named Adriana Diaz, who is a member of, um, of, of what were called the, the dream nine who were a bunch of undocumented students who had prior to DACA um, had migrated back to Mexico because they couldn't enroll in college in the United States. And so they had gone back to Mexico or to, to try to, um, to get in, get in school there and had, had sort of struggled and failed. And then DACA gets passed. And, and if they had stayed put, they would have been able to enroll in, in college. And I met this young woman in, in a shelter probably six, six to eight months before this, um, this thing happened. Um, but she was, uh, you know, asked to participate in this, in this, um, protest where basically she and eight other, um, individuals who were in Mexico put on caps and gowns and then walked across the U S Mexico border and, and asked for asylum. And it was a very dramatic moment and a really emotional moment with, you know, with these young people in, in caps and gowns. And it was this kind of big media circus on both sides of the border. Um, you know, I interviewed her and several other members of this group before they had crossed. Um, and I'd interview her many times before that. And it was just this really moving story. You know, she gets arrested, she goes to detention. Um, there's a big stink in detention and eventually she's given, um, um, She's given amnesty, um, but separated from her mom now, who was on the Mexican side of the border. And it was just a really powerful story and one that um, really moved me. But it made no sense in Land of Open Graves. And I wrote it in there and it was like living in the living in the book as part of a story. And it just didn't make any damn sense. And um, I took it out and I you know, my editors were like, it's just really not, it's, it just feels kind of extraneous, even though it's a great story. And it just super bummed me out that it, it had to come out. And I always said, I wanted to go back to that at, um, at some point in the future. I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, but that was an important lesson for me to be thinking about, okay, you know, and I use storyboard. So here's my storyboard. These are my characters. These are the story arcs. Do they all fit together? How's the pacing? You know, is everything going to work out in the end? Is it going to be a, a Will the resolution be 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 good enough for the for the reader, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and so that was a lesson on on when to know when to cut stuff out. But I think a lot of us have these these stories that happen to us in the field that we just don't know what to do with. Um, and actually, the the, the semi fictionalized stuff, you know, that was partly was a bunch of stories people had told me about being in the desert that I just didn't know where else to put. And so I, I was trying to find some home, um, you know, some home for them. Well, not to put you on the spot, but this, uh, this podcast is part of a broader initiative called ethnographic marginalia that is intended to be entirely for those kind of stories that get cut out. Um, 
or that don't necessarily fit a broader theoretical argument or, or they're just the experiences of doing ethnography. So for you or any of our listeners, um, that's the kind of stuff that we love to publish. Cool. Um, well, Jason, thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, talking with Jason de Leon, author of The Land of Open Grades and uh, the forthcoming at some point Soldiers and Kings. Um, this was fascinating and I, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.